Granted, it's an old reference, but Dan Barry could write the phone book and it would be well worth reading. Be it sports or New York or the extraordinary lives of ordinary people all over the country, Dan Barry is a must read. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. It's a podcast all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment, the early years, the doubt, the obstacles overcome, and the passion to push forward. Dan Barry is an acclaimed author and writer and columnist for the New York Times. No matter where his work takes him, the influence of his youth, a working-class Irish Catholic home on Long Island with a love for reading and newspapers, is never far away. And he's a gifted storyteller. Sports, both as a fan and participant, has played an integral role in his life and his work. So, why not start off by talking about the worst era in the history of the New York Yankees? Dan, I don't think I've ever started an interview uh, by saying this, but you and I have a mutual love of Celerino Sanchez. <laughs> That's right. We're the only two who might them Not to mention Jerry Kenny and Jake Gibbs and... And so the Yankee era that will never make the Yes Network. That's right. (laughs) The era that that shall be forgotten. Yeah, although it's not. And uh, it's strange for a Yankee generation that grew up watching them win World Series after World Series prior to us. And then, you know, more so much after us, the notion of the Yankees as the knots or have nots is a, a lost thought to uh to millions of yankee fans right for a period there they were they were worse than the washington senators which at that time meant something i also also (laughs) think that 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 fallow period and that's putting it nicely may have ended not with um you know the 76 series or anything like that but rather when mike kekich and fritz peterson swapped wives i think that kind of uh, burst the uh, bubble of <laughs> of uh, of not re- <laughs> this wasn't really baseball and they that kind of punctuated it. <laughs> yeah when, when that's the the uh item that's getting the most news about your team you know you're not in great that's shape. true that's true uh, yeah. you and i share the love of sports both playing it and watching it growing up. We were about the same age, so our frames of reference are about the same. Played a lot of basketball and played a lot of baseball. Did it have a meaning for you growing up or through the years that went beyond just, oh, this is something fun for me to do? Uh, well, well, baseball, I don't think I'd be the first um, child to say that baseball provided a connection with a somewhat odd and distant father. And so uh, my love for the Yankees really came from uh, my father. My father grew up during the Depression, had a very, very difficult life. And when the Yankees were like the, um, the royalty of baseball, he was this poor guy who had bounced around the city. And he identified, you know, vicariously with that royalty. So when the Yankees are at the Copa, Joe DiMaggio is dating and marrying Marilyn Monroe, this Depression-era kid from New York kind of identified with that. And so I inherited the love of baseball um, from him. 
he wasn't the kind of father who would go in the backyard and have a catch with me. He was very unathletic. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think that I worked very hard at playing baseball to win his approval. He wasn't a basketball fan. I found basketball as a, as a way to uh, get out of the house in the fall and winter when there was no baseball left. And uh, the house was filled with dysfunction. And so where do you go? You gravitate to, the, to a neighbor's house where there's a hoop outside. And that's what I did. And I've, I still play basketball, yeah. The game has provided you, from what I know along the way, it's, uh, it's had a therapeutic aspect to it uh, well, from your writing uh, about when you diagnosed with cancer in 1999. Does it still have a therapeutic aspect to it when you oh, play? Oh, absolutely. Uh, my wife encourages me to play because it is a, uh, it's a release valve. And you're right. For me, uh, basketball, particularly when you're by yourself, let's just say you're playing by yourself. It's just you, the basketball, and the hoop there can be a spiritual aspect to it, okay? Um, you get into a rhythm, you, you kind of lose your sense of self. And um, over the years when I was younger, you know, uh, I've written about this, if I had hit 10 foul shots, Mary Ellen Hornick would say that she'd go to the prom with me. Uh, and then later <laughs> on when I was going through um, a fairly um, problematic uh, form of cancer, that's putting it mildly, um, the way that I would calm myself after I'd come home from Sloan Kettering would be to go into um, the backyard and shoot baskets and, and say, if I, if I hit 10 in a row, you know, I'll get past this. By the way, the hitting the 10 foul shots in order to get the prom <laughs> date, that, that's better than any, you know, multi-million dollar contract. <laughs> That it, well, maybe the multi-million dollar contract couldn't hurt also, or the 10-day contract, but but I never had that, the hitting the 10 foul shots and you get the problem. Yeah, That's pretty yeah, good. You know, and, and, and it's a form of prayer. You, you know, you're, you're not praying to Red Auerbach, you're praying to God, and you're saying, God, look, <laughs> if, I, if I hit 10 foul shots, maybe this will happen. Uh, uh, God, if I hit 10 foul shots. And then, of course, the problem with, uh, with that, that um, challenge is that in basketball, if you hit your last shot, you shoot again, okay? So therefore, it becomes this eternal endeavor because if you hit 10 in a row, you can't just walk away. Uh, basketball protocol requires that you shoot the 11th, then of course, you'll either miss the 11th or the 12th, and then you have to start all over again. So conceivably, you could be out in the backyard forever. Unless you hit the last shot of like a, a game to 11 <laughs> with other players. And if I ever do that, just saying, that's when I announce my No, that, that's true. I, I'm talking about, you're exactly you right. Go I'm, I'm talking about when it's the solitary endeavor and you're playing against yourself. But absolutely, there's nothing sweeter than hitting the last shot that wins the game and you, you walk away knowing that if you play another game, you'll probably injure yourself or embarrass yourself. So... <laughs> Right. That's always going to happen. That notion of spirituality, be it specifically about religion or not, seems for me as a reader of yours to always be in your writing, whether it be in a quote unquote spiritual place or not. And you've written about the conversations with God from an early time with when your father uh, was sick with migraines and, and really struggling. And you could hear that struggle in the house to your own battle with cancer in 99 
do you find that those conversations continue? Do they continue? Yes, oftentimes I'm, uh, <laughs> let's say um, a friend of mine said he wasn't a lapsed Catholic, he was a collapsed Catholic. And I think I identify with that, being a collapsed Catholic, like succumbing to the, to the cultural aspects of being a Catholic, uh, particularly a, a New York Irish American Catholic. It's a certain kind of wise ass form of Catholicism, I suppose, you know, uh, um, with all the trappings of, of superstition and wish, wishes and, and uh, beliefs. So I, I think I fall into that category. And so when a family member is in trouble or something, or if I'm in trouble, that's what I'll do. I'll go and shoot baskets and kind of meditate about it. I'm also the kind of a guy, even now, when someone loses a parent or someone dies, I go to the St. Francis uh, uh, Chapel across the street from Penn Station um, and get a mass card. I still do that. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but that's not to say that I go to Sunday Mass. But if someone dies or someone's parent dies, I'm probably at the wake or the funeral. Growing up on Long Island, the stories of your parents, and again, you've written eloquently, eloquently about those, especially in your memoir, Pull Me Up, were, were the, the lessons from their lives, were they spoken to you or unspoken? Did you have to figure them out or did they tell you, here's what I've been through and here's the lesson to be learned? I would say that it was mostly unspoken and it wasn't, I'd say, until years later that I appreciated uh, not only living in a kind of a, you know, lower middle class uh, split ranch on Long Island. Uh, it wasn't until later that I appreciated all the effort that had been put into getting there. Do you know what I mean? Some, you know, Long Island... Mm along with, say, New Jersey, are oftentimes the uh, punchline to some joke. And I, I think I would have been guilty of that at some point. I, you know, when I was growing up, I couldn't wait to get off of Long Island. But it was much later that I realized that here were my parents. My mother probably didn't finish high school. She was an immigrant. And my father finished high school at night school. And they worked so damned hard to, to provide for their family. And that meant a split level ranch in, you know, suburban Long Island. And uh, that's not, that's not something to laugh about. They didn't really speak about their hardships. It, you know, uh, certainly my mother never spoke about my hardship, uh, her hardships rather. But what I took from, I took different things from each of them. My father was always the guy ranting at the television, screaming at uh, Nixon during the Watergate, you know, during the Watergate hearings and um, railing against the man, um, railing against uh, the affluent and, uh, and um, uh, feeling as though he was powerless. You know, he was a working class guy who, uh, who was the, the victim of the system that didn't really provide for him. That's how he perceived the world. Big Pete Seeger guy, Paul Robeson guy, Marx Brothers guy, W.C. Fields guy. That's who he was. Uh, and so I, I think I got my desire to hold the, the powerful accountable from him. Okay. 
And then from my mother, I think I got um, uh, a desire to navigate the world through telling stories. That's what she did. She would regale us with stories about going to the supermarket um, and uh, really the the truth of the story was she had just bought a quart of milk. That's all it was, right? <laughs> but it would wind up being a 45-minute, hour-long uh, monologue about this Homeric epic uh, excursion to Waldbaum's or <laughs> ShopRite. And uh, it would be hilarious, and it would be uh, reflective of her observational skills and her wit and 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 the way she would use language as i said she was born she was born in ireland and so she had a way of indirection with language that you'll often see with irish writers a, a challenge an internal challenge to 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 say something um, that is familiar differently to figure out a different metaphor or a different um analogy to make the that moment uh fresher or funnier. And I got that from my mother. And so you put the two of them together. And as I often said, the third thing is uh, getting my ass kicked a lot when I was a kid. I went to parochial school. I had to wear a silly uniform. And, you know, um, uh, I might as well have worn a sign on my back that said, kick me. You once described the bus ride to, I believe, high school as Lord of the Flies. Oh, that was absolutely true. That was, well, that was an all boys Catholic high school in the early to mid seventies. And, uh, um, it was a sociological experiment and I would say it was a failed one. <laughs> you survived. You I survived. Barely... In terms of your mom, the stories ever about the old country or that was done. Why would I want to revisit that? Yeah. So she, she came from an Ireland of the forties and early 1950s and Ireland was, um, was, um, uh, very poor then. So when she left, it was something she wanted to leave. Um, and so she only went back um, once effectively. She only went back once after she was 16. Uh, we went on a vacation there for a couple of weeks when, in the early 1970s. I think she was very, very, very proud of being Irish. She never became an American citizen up until her death, I would tell her that I was going to turn her in because she stopped reporting to the uh, 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 INS, whatever the hell it was at the time. And uh, so she was proudly Irish, but her memories of Ireland would have been difficult. You know, she was orphaned when she was about 15. And so there's all sorts of pain involved and, and deprivation and, and difficult nuns and all the all the all the parts of repressive Ireland would be what she would be remembering. You were going to turn in the woman who, as I understand it, once wrote out for you what to say as you were trying to call a girl for a date when you were a kid. Is this yes, true? Yes, yes. I would do that to tease her. Um, and she could never say certain words. She could never say port authority. She could only say port authority. So her, her, her brogue would appear in interesting different ways. Butter would be butter, like that. You were baiting her to write it out, or she was offering to write out, here's what you should say to this young woman. Oh, no. In that case, um, she could see me um, pacing around the kitchen, and the kitchen was, you know, uh, quite small. 
And, you know, you know, she could, she grew up on a farm, I guess. And so she can figure out the, the needs of a, of a, of a young buck. I don't know. Um, but she could tell, and she also knew I was like extremely shy. She handed me this envelope and on the back of it was written out a script for uh, what to say to the girl that she knew I was trying to figure out how to summon the nerve to call. And so, um, you know, I, I got mad at my mother. I, you know, I felt embarrassed that she had read me so correctly. And I basically shushed her out of the kitchen and uh, she grabbed her Schmidt's beer and her Marlboro cigarettes and went up to the living room to watch Murph Griffin. And uh, it took me 15 minutes or 20 minutes. And I finally called and, and uh, the young woman got on the phone and uh, I didn't know what to say. And I grabbed the back of that envelope and I read it <laughs> word for word, my voice cracking. Wouldn't you like to go to the prom with me? You know, I think the note that my mother wrote was, you know, so silly. It said, it was lovely weather today or some, something absurd like that. Some <laughs> opening gambit that was so embarrassing, yet I used it. Far be it for me to throw any stones leading off this interview talking about Celerino Sanchez. Yeah. So, you know, how about how's the weather? Is as good an opening line? Right. You know, whatever will right, work, right, right. whatever will work. One of your heroes, one of my heroes, uh, Pete Hamill, uh, told me once during an interview long ago, uh, that his generation, or at least in his house in Brooklyn, he grew up with something called the green ceiling. The notion of in an Irish and Irish American family, why would you want to be something other than a police officer or a firefighter or a civil servant? What are you too, too good for that? His words about his family setting. Did you have any, any semblance of that growing up in your home? No, no, I didn't. But by the same token, um, nor did my parents get involved in the college process. By the time I was 16, you know, it was going to be left to me. Um, neither of my parents went to college. So I would have been the first one in our family to go to college. And um, I think they thought I could figure it out because they had no experience with colleges. Uh, not, not only with applications and what the world meant, but what college even meant. And uh, I wound up going to St. Bonaventure University in upstate New York. And my parents did not visit the campus until my graduation four years later. I even got a ride to St. Bonaventure uh, my first week of freshman year. I, you know, so they never even went to the campus. Like parents weekend, like... <laughs> Uh, that wasn't a part of my life. So I, I think they were encouraging in other ways, you know, be who you can be, be the best you can be. It was not settle for, you know, or, or strive toward a civil service job because it is a good pension after 20 years. Though I think they would have been proud of me if I'd gotten that, if I'd followed that path. Absolutely. I think it was really just be happy. Is there a notion from them, again, either spoken or unspoken of, well, there's a big world out there. You, you don't know how good you have it. Uh, go seek that big world. Uh, no, not, not really. No, I, you know, it's interesting you ask that. But uh, I do think that when I was in high school, I was, you know, writing for the 
school newspaper and I was, you know, I was, I was a, the, the, the writing was sophomoric. I would say that absolutely sophomoric and getting off, you know, inside jokes at the expense of Franciscan brothers or what have you. But I enjoyed writing and my parents, uh, particularly my father, took great pride in that, that someone had uh, gravitated toward the word. Both of them were big readers. And so the idea that someone in the family was thinking about trying to make a living through writing was um, a source of pride early on. Your father was a big newspaper reader as well, right? Oh, absolutely. Daily News, Newsday, New York Times, uh, everything. Mad Magazine, National Lampoon, <laughs> but uh, everything, everything. Mad Magazine, generations of people, mostly young people, learned the notion of sarcasm based on Mad Magazine. That's that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you're at St. Bonaventure, and I know you have a love for that school, a love for your alma mater, which is great. Is Is the path clear? This is what I'm going to do. Or are you wondering, should I do this? Do I have a plan B? Can I make a go of this in terms of a life in writing? In newspapers. Yeah, so I didn't think it would be in newspapers. Uh, I, I wanted to be a journalist, but I wanted to be, um, you know, um, the next Hunter Thompson, you know, the next uh, E.F. Stone or something, but more like Hunter Thompson, you know, uh, shaking my fist at the world and being, you know, wise and, uh, and uh, cutting and, and clearly subjective. Um, and so that's the, the path I pursued at St. Bonaventure, you know, you know, writing harsh assessments of the Franciscans yet again. Uh, <laughs> but then I, I graduated from St. Bonaventure and discovered there was actually no market for a 22-year-old who thought he was Hunter S. Thompson. Uh, it's, it surprises me to this day. And so um, I spent a while uh, digging ditches, actually, and working at Delicatessens and then wound up going to graduate school on some poor boy's scholarship. I went to New York University. And when I was at New York University, um, that's where I learned how to do proper news writing, how to, how to go to an event and come back and in a couple of hours, if, if that, uh, write um, a, a serviceable uh, account of what had occurred at that meeting. Um, so, so New York University helped me a great deal in, in helping me to uh, uh, identify my path. And so then I graduated from New York University, and uh, I was the best educated ditch digger uh, in Long Island for a while. Um, I would be applying to Newsday and being rejected by Newsday, but going to the Newsday um, property to uh, to install their lawn sprinklers. So <laughs> that's what I was doing, and I had a graduate degree. So that went on for a while, and I applied to, I'm not making this up, into the hundreds of newspapers all up and down the Eastern Seaboard. And even to this day, I remember all their names. You know, some of those newspapers are gone, but, uh, you know, the, the day of New London, I remember that. The Poughkeepsie Journal, um, the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle, uh, you know, tons of them, uh, and uh, got rejections from 99.9% .9 of them if they responded. 
so in those in that moment or in in, in that time uh and by the way uh we've all had bad jobs and the line well it's it's better than digging ditches we all <laughs> say that as a metaphor but you could actually after that if you were having a struggle on a day at work you're gonna this no trust me this is actually better than digging ditches and i know I from firsthand experience right so i would i would spend the day digging ditches you know i'd be in the back of a a van and be rattling with picks and shovels and then i'd come home and i'd go into the basement where i was living in my parents house and i would write out uh cover letters to the poughkeepsie journal the albany times union the schenectady paper all over the place. And, you know, some of your listeners may not remember or know that this wasn't by computer. This was on a typewriter and you would have to have uh, corrective tape. So every time you made a typographical error on a cover letter, you would have to stick this little piece of white material between the key and the paper and it would white out your mistake, <laughs> right? And because you can't, you, you can't have a typo in a cover letter that is asking for a job at a newspaper. You know what I mean? That is the first thing that removes that cover letter from the desk and into the dustbin. Uh, so that's, that, that, was my, that was my life, working by day, digging ditches, and by night, uh, writing and sometimes rewriting cover letters and then mailing them and then getting up in the morning and going to dig more ditches. Your example, I speak from personal experience. I once had an interview at ABC News. I was three months out of college, couldn't get arrested for a desk assistant job. I walk in, the woman says, spell opportunity. And I, of course, spell it with O-P-P-U-R, not O-R. And she says to me, look, next time, <laughs> make sure you spell everything correctly. Now let's I know, talk. I and I never misspelled it ever again. So in those moments, in those at that time, however long it lasted, ever come close to giving up? You know what? Uh, no, I, I came close to uh, working at trade magazines because I couldn't find anything. I remember uh, almost taking a job with a magazine called Weeds, Trees and Turf, you know, when it was meant for people who are in the landscaping or, or lawn care business and that I would be a, a journalist covering that world. <laughs> I'm, I'm grateful that I didn't take that job. Um, and and I, I tried repeatedly to get hired at the New York Times, too, uh, because a news clerk job paid more than what my father was making. And I found that astounding. And, uh, and that didn't go well either. So, <laughs> Is your father's work experience, he worked on Wall Street, and then he well, was he suddenly suddenly not working on Wall Street. Right. And when he when I say he was working on Wall Street, he was literally on Wall Street. He was he was a cold call guy. OK, so he would go up and down into offices and make cold calls trying to sell uh, uh, bonds. Um, so and he had a couple of good years and he had a couple of fallow years and then he, he lost that job. And for a while, he was an assistant manager uh, at a jack in the box. The, which was a, a fast food franchise at that time. And he was, he was wholly unsuited for that profession, but the whole family helped him try to manage a jack-in-the-box of all things. And then he wound up being uh, uh, 
the manager of a check cashing store in a strip mall in, in, in Deer Park where we grew up. So did you, as a young man, take any lesson from that experience? Going into print journalism, it's not the easiest uh, field in the world. So was there any lesson learned from watching what he had to go through? I, what I learned was um, I don't want to be a, an assistant manager of a jack-in-the-box, and I don't want to be a manager of a, a check-cashing store. Um, I learned that uh, there are ups and downs in a, in a life, and certainly there were many downs in my father's life. But what I also learned uh, was my, uh, perseverance, my father's perseverance. It was, I think it was humiliating for him to go from Wall Street to running a fast, you know, failing actually as a fast food uh, franchise manager and then running a check cashing store. He's not wearing a suit and tie anymore. He was a very uh, meticulous dresser and uh, he wasn't doing that anymore. Um, so, but he knew that he had to provide for a wife and four children and he had a mortgage. And so he would do what it took to, to get it done. And he was also suffering um, uh, with a profound disability. He had cluster migraines that would be incredibly debilitating and would leave him uh, um, moaning at night, trying to find relief from the headaches. So his days were going to the check cashing store, coming home at 6.30, having a few beers because he knew the headache was gonna come and he was trying to numb himself from the pain, mm -hmm. then go upstairs and have massive headaches well into the early morning and then get up and do it all over again. That's what he did for many, many years. So uh, that's what I took from that was perseverance and sense of responsibility. And I think he lived, but uh, his hopes, I think, were transferred to his children, including me. Like I would be, I'd be the guy who would tell the story of people like him, people like my mother, and hold people accountable. I think that's what he hoped I would do and thought I would do. I know your mom died in uh, 1999, and right. uh, your father as a big news, both of them as big readers, I, I, don't, I don't even wanna presuppose what the reaction is when they read you in a newspaper can you tell me a first time when, hey, mom, hey, dad, I, I, I worked on this story. I'm sending it home because this is obviously pre-internet or pretty close to the beginning of the internet uh, and what their reaction to it was to see your byline in print. Well, I'll, I'll give you the best example. Uh, I, I got an internship at the Daily News uh, when it was the Daily News and uh, it was on uh, West 42nd in that wonderful building on the east side with the massive globe in the lobby. And uh, I was assigned to um, what had been called the women's page. But when I was there, it was called first person. And uh, so I did all sorts of stories that maybe I wasn't best suited for. One of them, the first one was to go talk to Susie Chafee. And Susie Chafee was better known uh, as Susie Chapstick. She was this, this very accomplished skier who was doing these commercials for uh, Chapstick. And the assignment was to go to Susie Chafee and see how you can get in shape for the skiing se season in late summer and early fall. 
I've never skied, ever. <laughs> no idea what this was about. But I, I went to uh, Susie Chafee's apartment and she was showing me exercises that you would do to get in shape for the skiing season. And as I remembered, she was basically just hopping back and forth over a chair. You know, <laughs> I had no idea what it was. Anyway, so I wrote a story and there was a nice photograph of Susie jumping over a chair or something. And uh, uh, there it was in the Daily News, my first byline in the Daily News, uh, you know, uh, an eminently forgettable piece. Um, but it was published and it was in the Daily News. And when I came home the next time, they, my parents had had it laminated on a piece of wood uh, and presented it to me as like this 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 trophy or this or this uh, this uh, um, uh, gift of the moment, and uh, it was entirely mortifying for me, um, but I still have it. Yeah, that's beautiful, Dan Barry. He's the winner of the 2023 Eugene O'Neill Lifetime Achievement Award given out by the organization Irish American Writers and Artists. One segment with Dan does not do him justice. So there's a part two of our conversation, including stories about covering the murder of a colleague at his first paper in Connecticut, his first interview at the New York Times, which started out badly and went downhill from there, and the time one of his writing heroes, Jimmy Breslin, joined him for a cancer procedure at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. That's in part two of my conversation with Dan Barry. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey. <laughs>